You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello and welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 467 of this podcast. Today is Monday, September 12th, 2022. And that, of course, means that yesterday was September 11th. And it's been 21 years since the attacks on 9-11-2001. I distinctly remember coming down the stairs in our house in Hillsborough, Ohio. I was a teenager at the time, and the news was on in the living room, and all I see is this footage of this set of towers in New York City with a hole in the side of one and smoke coming out of that hole, and of course, I'm curious what in the world is going on, and there's all this speculation about whether a small passenger plane had been flown in to the side of the tower by mistake or accident, and people were still trying to figure out what was going on, what happened when another plane flew into the towers. And as the day unfolded, of course, there was a lot of chaos, there was a lot of mixed reporting and speculation. And then you find out that there's another flight that's been hijacked that was flown into the Pentagon. And then you find out that there was another flight that had been hijacked that crashed into a field. And all told, that's not what this episode is about, but it is a sobering thought to remember that 21 years ago, was really the launch of the war on terror as we knew it. Whether you agree with the decision to launch a war on terror uh, or not, it is a sobering thought to remember that the world changed a lot, a lot, a lot. There were all kinds of things that happened governmentally, politically, socially, culturally, not just here in the U.S., but around the world As a result, things were set in motion, which now affect the way that we live and the kind of world that we perceive ourselves to live in. But I didn't do a podcast episode on September 11th. Uh, Quite frankly, I just don't have a lot to say about it this year, except to say that it's sobering. It's sobering to see how things unfolded under President George W. Bush and then subsequently Barack Obama, and then subsequently Donald Trump. And now with Joe Biden, we have given Afghanistan back to the Taliban and ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda. And what was it all for? Really, what was it all for? Was it worth it? Did we accomplish what we set out to do? Or did we expend a great deal of blood and treasure and time and attention chasing after ghosts? I think it was good that we went after the people who were responsible. I think that mission creep (laughs) uh, got the better of 
the U.S., to put it mildly. And I also, as well, think it's very concerning how our civil liberties here in the U.S. were greatly eroded as terrorists were being rooted out and gone after. Now we're at the point where it seems as though conservative Americans, Republicans, are viewed as the greatest threat to national security by the deep state, by our alphabet soup agencies, which were given broad mandates to go after foreign terrorists who had a religious and political ideology at odds with ours. It seems as though the chickens have come home to roost in ways that conservatives warned about for the past 21 years. These things are going to be turned back on American citizens for other purposes. And conservative Christians are going to get lumped in with fundamentalist, uh, hardliner, some would say extremist Muslims, but I would just say Muslims who take their Quran very literally. And if Christians take their Bibles very literally, you don't get the same result. And yet that's what a lot of folk who don't like organized religion, they don't like the major Abrahamic Uh, religions all that much. They don't like Christianity and Judaism and Islam. They have tried to lump all of it together. And that actually brings us to (laughs) one uh, prominent Christian pastor, theologian, commentator, and uh, overall all-around controversial figure in Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is actually the subject of this podcast episode. We're not going to talk a lot about 9-11 any more than I already have, but I will say that Doug Wilson from the start is someone I have enjoyed the material of, the conversations I have watched videos of from panel discussions he has been a part of with other prominent Christian leaders here in the U.S. have been very engaging, very interesting. And even when I haven't agreed with every detail of what he has said that I have heard or have read, and there's a fair amount that I haven't agreed with per se in the details, I have appreciated that he seems to be an honest participant in these conversations. And he seems to be someone willing to say things that a lot of the more polite types who want to play nice Uh, above all things, (laughs) uh, are just never going to be okay with anyone saying. They don't want to say them, and they also don't want anyone else to say those things either. Before we get into the main body of what we're going to be reading and responding to and trying to make sense of surrounding Doug Wilson, I want to give a brief mention to something my wife was asking me the other day. She asked me, what's the difference between being kind and being nice? What's the difference between being kind and being nice? And it was something she was reading or listening to where that question was posed and the person posing it, of course, had their own answer. And for my part, I wanted to know my wife's answer. Man, what is the difference between being kind and being nice? I could think out loud for a minute, but I really would like to hear your answer. 
And basically, what we have come to in the way of a consensus, my wife and I, and uh, with some help from uh, whoever it was that she was referencing, I don't remember at the moment who it was she was referencing, who had brought this question to her mind, uh, the consensus we've come to (laughs) is that being kind is internal. Being kind is something that comes from your inner person, your heart, your mind. This is a genuine, heartfelt emotion, if you will, sentiment, if you will, uh, way of framing the people around you. That you would be kind to them is of a piece with you loving them, being gentle to them, considering them, looking to their needs, esteeming their needs as more important than your own. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That second command, Jesus says, is like the first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But it's distinct. It's distinct from the first. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But the second is a byproduct of the first. When you realize that God created mankind in his image and consequently that to sin against your fellow man is to sin against God in whose image we alike are created. But niceness, niceness on the other hand, is not quite the same thing as kindness. Being nice is more of an external thing. And you might say, that niceness has to do with manners or being polite or being pleasant. Niceness might stem from kindness, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Niceness is an outward showing that may or may not be genuine. It may or may not be reflective of the inner reality. And I think where this really boils down to is the trouble with being too nice for niceness sake. You know, there's the song about Santa Claus that tells us in part, we should be good for goodness sake. And some people adapt that, that we should be nice for niceness sake. And I dare say that when I read my Bible, when I read about Christ, I would not characterize all of his words spoken, all of his interactions with his disciples, with the common people with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, I would not describe all of those interactions as nice per se. And what do we do with that? That's the big question. The big question is not, can we write ourselves a blank check to treat people just any old way we please or to be unkind or to be mean or to be rude? No, that's not the big idea behind the question. The big idea behind the question is, if we're trying to follow after Christ, if we're trying to look to him as not just our sufficient Lord and Savior, not just our holy Messiah, not just our Redeemer, not just our Lord, but as our example to follow, our pattern to imitate If we're trying to follow after him, if we're trying to imitate him, if we're trying to look to him as our 
example of perfect obedience to the Father and appropriate love for our fellow man, we have to make some sense of the interactions where he isn't nice per se. And so that also relates to the Doug Wilson controversy, because Doug Wilson is one who is not always nice per se. But then the big question is whether those times where he is not particularly nice are still nevertheless times when he is being obedient to God, being faithful to God, being properly reverential to God, and more to the point, God's word, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves. Is he still being faithful even if he is not always nice? Is he still being kind? Can someone be kind without being nice per se? And not that we need to choose between the two all the time necessarily, but sometimes do we have to choose to not be nice, strictly speaking, in order to be kind or, if you will, to more holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, follow and obey the first and greatest commandment and the second commandment in that order? Do we sometimes have to put off niceness in the interest of faithfulness? That's a big question. So without further ado, what we're going to do is we are going to read through a timeline of controversial Pastor Doug Wilson of Moscow, Idaho, which, again, my wife sent to me because she does that from time to time. She'll send me a link and she'll say, what do you make of this? What do you think of this? And in this case, she sent me this link and it was to a Facebook group post. The Facebook group or Facebook page is titled Examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho. The page describes itself as an education website. There's an email, examiningmoscow at gmail.com. The intro on the Facebook page reads as follows, a Christian organization documenting the serious errors associated with Doug Wilson of Moscow, Idaho. It has, for what it's worth, 3,800 likes, and 4,500 followers, which is to say, (laughs) at least the way I look at it, there are 700 people who don't necessarily want to go on the record for one reason or another as liking this page, but they do want to see updates. The jury's still out, perhaps, or they know exactly what they think of Doug Wilson. They know exactly what they think of this page. But they do want to stay abreast of the controversy and what the other side, what the critics are saying about Doug Wilson. That's how I interpret it. When I see a a big difference between those who like and those who follow, if uh, there are more followers than there are likers, (laughs) I see that as, uh, well, we want to hear what you're saying, but we don't necessarily like it. We don't don't like you. We don't like what you're saying, but we do want to hear what you have to say. If you see it the other way, uh, there are more likes than follows. Uh, I think that's where you have people who don't necessarily want to hear what you have to say, but they do like you. They they do like you and uh, they like what you're doing. They just don't want to 
hear it. Uh, so that's always fun to see. But in this case, examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho has more follows than likes on Facebook. And uh, it's not a huge, huge contingent. But then on the other hand, it really depends on who these likers and who these followers are. That, that really is the big question. If you've got uh, a lot of followers who are pastors, theologians, professors, uh, you know, various lay leaders, if they are following and that is informing or shaping some of their opinions about not just Doug Wilson, but really by extension, everything he has put out or everything he has started and launched, well, then that could have an outsized influence on what a great many more people think of Doug Wilson. But that said, let's jump right in and we're going to read through this timeline. And I'm going to tell you what I think about some of what is alleged and how I read these allegations. Because I think some of these are really serious allegations. Some of these are really silly allegations or insinuations. They're not even directly stating, hey, you know, this is bad, bad, bad. It's just we're going to word something that might be entirely innocuous in a way that is supposed to fit into a larger narrative. And, you know, what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that? Doug Wilson's not the first controversial figure in history, or he's not the only one in modern times. And he certainly won't be the last. You're going to run across stuff like this. You, you need to know what to make of it. But mid-1960s, the timeline starts off with Doug Wilson's father, James Wilson, settling his family in Moscow, Idaho, after retiring from the Navy. James Wilson is the author of the book, The Principles of War, a handbook on strategic evangelism, which posits that the same strategies for physical warfare can be applied to spiritual evangelism. Uh, so far, so good. I don't see anything untoward about that, although that might make some people very uncomfortable if they have a more pacifistic view of Christian life and thought. If you have a more pacifistic view of Christian life and thought, I am curious, what do you make of uh, allusions to uh, metaphors in uh, the New Testament concerning the whole armor of God or fighting the good fight or what have you? What do you make of martial language fighting language in the New Testament and especially in the Old Testament as well if you are uncomfortable with someone doing that. Now, they're not necessarily saying this is, you know, awful, ugly, no good, rotten, bad, that Doug Wilson's father, James Wilson, uh, wrote this book or that his background was in the Navy. They're just saying it and they think it's relevant. So I assume uh they think it's somewhat untoward or it sets the stage. And you know, that's where things got off on the wrong foot was that James Wilson retired from the Navy and wrote this book on evangelism, uh, basically in a, in a martial vein or on a martial note. 1975, so we jump forward you know, 10 years or so, the Evangelical Free Church of Pullman, Washington, planted a church called Faith Fellowship in Moscow, Idaho. In 1977, guitar-playing member Doug Wilson took over the church's pastorate under controversial circumstances and has held it ever since. The church has undergone several name changes and is now called 
Christ Church. Now, there's a footnote down below here in the timeline saying that the controversial circumstances referenced are these. There are question marks about the legitimacy of Wilson, who has no formal theological training, being in the pulpit because he claimed for 10 years that the other elders gave approval to him becoming pastor. When the issue was forced over a course of many months that turned into years, Wilson was ultimately never able to produce the elder's letter approving him as pastor. Wilson's former philosophy professor from the University of Idaho has documented some of that here. And then they put a link in and I'm not going to read through that link because we only have so much time, but I will say uh, his having a philosophy professor at the University of Idaho who uh, wanted to document that Wilson was not necessarily uh, approved or uh, endorsed by the elders. It's all, without reading it, a bit odd because I'm scratching my head here wondering exactly how does that work, right? How, how does that work that you, you just, you know, have a, a, a squatter who one day walks into the pulpit and says, okay, I'm the pastor now. Like, how does that work? If you don't have some kind of a buy-in by the elders. I'm just trying to imagine a scenario in which that happens and then comes up months or years later. Hey, wait a second. What, what do you, who, who told you you could be pastor? Oh, I just declared myself pastor like Michael Scott on The Office. I declare bankruptcy. That's not how it works, Michael. You can't just say, <laughs> you can't just say <laughs> that it, you're bankrupt. He says, I didn't say it. I declared it. Uh, you know, it, it, what's the scenario here that Doug Wilson would just declare that he's the pastor and everybody says, oh, okay, well, I guess he's the pastor now like that. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird and odd. And uh, I don't know what to do with that. But as for the insinuation that he has no formal theological training and therefore is illegitimate, I... I honestly uh, am not bothered by that. I'm not bothered by that. I I have been to many a church where the pastor had the formal theological training and was not handling the word of God very skillfully and very courageously. I've been to many a church where the pastor had formal theological training and yet they were not good shepherds over the flock that was entrusted to them. They were not diligent in keeping watch over the souls of their congregations. And so I don't put all of the stock that some might in formal theological training. I think it's fine. If you went and got a seminary degree and ordination and all that, that's fine. But it does not in and of itself qualify you because you could have anyone, just anyone, going through the motions and getting that piece of paper. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're qualified for one thing. And for another thing, with some institutions which give out those credentials, I think it's more of a liability than it is an asset. I'm not saying that all seminaries are equal, 
in terms of the soundness of their doctrine or the wisdom of their counsel. But I am saying that some are just downright illegitimate because they're promoting false teaching and confusion and nonsense and uh, a callow approach to the pastorate, which is the cause of so many troubles in our churches. But moving on, 1981. So here we've got uh, four years in to Doug Wilson having declared himself the pastor uh, under controversial circumstances, so-called. 1981, Wilson founds Logos School, a K-12 through in Moscow, Idaho. 1991, so 10 years into the future, Wilson founds Logos Press as the publishing arm of Wilson's K-12 through school, Logos, also in Moscow, Idaho. In 2012, Doug Wilson and his son, Nate Wilson, buy Logos Press and make it a division of Canon Press. Okay, that's, that's fine. So we're jumping forward to 1993 next. Canon Press was founded by the elders of Community Evangelical Fellowship, which eventually became Christ Church in 2012. Wilson arranged for Canon Press to be sold to his son, Nate Wilson, and his agent, Aaron Wrench. 1994, Wilson founds New St. Andrews, a college in Moscow, Idaho. Also in 1994, Wilson founds the Association of Classical Christian Schools, ACCS, and is general editor of Omnibus. A decade down the road, Wilson is implicated in a plagiarism scandal involving the widely used Omnibus materials, which are sold through Veritas Press. Also in the years to come, Wilson will make connections to Classical Conversations, another education organization, through his association with Classical Conversations CEO Robert Bortons, son of Classical Conversations founder Leigh Bortons. Veritas and Classical Conversations curriculum are widely used homeschooling resources in conservative Christian circles. Note that the homeschooling realm is one of the primary ways through which Wilson's influence has spread for the past 25 years. 1995, Wilson founds Greyfriars Hall, a seminary in Moscow, Idaho. 1996, Wilson co-authors a book with Presbyterian pastor Steve Wilkins. The book is titled Slavery As It Was and is a defense of chattel slavery in the antebellum South in the United States. Wilkins is a pastor in Monroe, Louisiana, and a founding member of the League of the South. Excerpts below. So excerpt number one, they've got, they've got two. Uh, and I quote, what we say is that there were examples of gross mistreatment of slaves, but that there were also slaves who thought back on their time as slaves with affection for the people that they knew and loved, end quote. All right. Uh, I, I'm sorry. It, <clears throat> is that what uh, is that controversial to say? Yes, it is controversial. Is that scandalous to say in our day? Yes, it is scandalous to say in our day. Is that incorrect? Is that wrong? Is that false? Are we disputing the truth of this or are we disputing that this should be something that's said? You know, even though it's true, you don't need to say things like that. Why would you say something like that? Right? There were, hear that. There were examples of gross mistreatment of slaves, but that there were also slaves who thought back on their time 
as slaves with affections for the people that they knew and loved. Why would that be objectionable to make note of? You have people who were slaves who actually didn't look back on their masters or their masters' families with contempt and loathing because they were actually treated kindly and they had meaningful relationships. We can't comprehend that because we're convinced that slavery is evil. It's the most evil thing possible. But there are reasons to pause and take a step back and assess where we got that idea. And also, too, is it possible that slavery can be a bad thing? It can be good that the slaves were emancipated, that slavery, as it was, (laughs) to borrow the title of their book, uh, it was it was good that slavery as it was was abolished in the United States of America and at the same time that not all slaves felt they were treated badly. You know, whether they should have, in our opinion, is somewhat beside the point. If they didn't feel they were treated badly, is it not worth noting? Is that not worth pointing out and saying, uh, you know, in a conversation, in in an exploration of the subject, I, I think it's worth noting. I think it's worth pointing out and considering personally. Excerpt number two, though, and I quote, slavery as it existed in the South was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity. Because of its dominantly patriarchal character, it was a relationship based upon mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multi, multiracial society, rather, which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. All right, so that one, that that one right there. If you say something like that, similar to the previous remark, you need to be able to back it up. Why would you say that? And is that careful enough? I would say no. And actually, I think Doug Wilson would agree these days that that was not careful enough. That was overly broad. That was hyperbolic. To say that it was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity, I that, I, I would disagree. I, I would say it wasn't always. I would say it wasn't always. And, and that's where the first excerpt is better. But sometimes it was an adversarial relationship. Sometimes it was pervaded with racial animosity. I, that, that's, that's what it is. Now, for somebody to say this and then to get pushback and to get argued with and debated and then to retract, to reword, to say, ah, you know what, actually, I, <clears throat> you're right, right? I mean, that's the public discourse. And it's not to say that free speech means you don't suffer any consequences, you don't suffer any uh, mark against your reputation or what people think of you. You know, you might be free to say it. We're also free to think you're an idiot for saying it, right? But I think that there's, there's a bit of hyperbole on both sides here where examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho's Facebook page is concerned and also where this book slavery as it was, uh, was concerned. I think there's a bit of uncareful hyperbole on both sides 
overly broad statements that uh, you know aren't aren't necessary. I mean, just frankly, they're not necessary. Um, you know, I, I think when it comes to public discourse, if all we know are the extremes, then we can't have reasonable discussions, and we need to have reasonable discussions. We we need to know what to make of these things, and we need to not lose our wits just because somebody says something that we find to be challenging. You know, we've got to be able to grapple with that and not just, you know, quote somebody saying something we don't like towards the end of canceling them, which does seem to be what examining Doug Wilson's uh, timeline here is driving at. The big idea is to cancel Doug Wilson, cancel the people who have associated with Doug Wilson cancel his Canon Press and New St. Andrews College and Greyfriars, uh, what have you, seminary, uh, Greyfriars Hall in Moscow. Moving on, though, 1998, two years later, Wilson forms the CREC denomination, Confederation of Reformed and Evangelical Churches. Now, that use of Confederation, uh, in light of slavery as it was, you know that was not uh, perhaps <laughs> a mistake or an oversight. Wilson may have known what he was doing there in choosing the word confederation. Now, I will say the Confederacy, the rebels during the Civil War, uh, they didn't invent the term confederacy. And so maybe to some extent, what you have here is Wilson and his compatriots saying, you know, we shouldn't cancel a word or a concept just because we don't like slavery and we don't like, you know, the Southern cause in the Civil War. We shouldn't cancel and stop using the word confederate or confederacy or confederation. Basically, confederate just means with federate, with federation. Moving on, late 1990s, early 2000s, the Center for Biblical Counseling is established by Wilson in Moscow, Idaho. From the Truth About Moscow website, a website filled with primary source documentation, quote, the CBC appears to be an intelligence gathering operation for Douglas Wilson, dot, 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 dot. The form is titled Counseling Application, Personal Info and Agreement, and says, CBC maintains the highest level of confidentiality with all of its counselees and counselors. What is shared remains confidential between the counselee and his or her counselor. However, further down the page, the same agreement affirms we may disclose to the church leadership, elders, and small group leaders only that information which we believe is necessary for them to effectively and biblically fulfill their responsibility to shepherd. This contradiction means the CBC does not respect your privacy and they will violate it without your permission. This unhappy fact is relevant because Doug Wilson blackmails Kirkers and former Kirkers into silence by threatening to publish their confidential information. He has an empire to protect. He does not welcome whistleblowers. Now, this, this right here, if what is being alleged were true, that you have blackmail going on. You have this intelligence gathering disguised as 
biblical counseling. We're going to get you to tell us your deepest, darkest, ugliest secrets. And then if you step out of line or we need something from you or we need you to stop doing or saying something, we're going to leverage your deepest, darkest secrets, which you've confided in our counselors. You know, if that is true, that is damning. If that is true, that is disqualifying. That would be, in my view, a reason to stop referencing Doug Wilson, stop employing his materials, stop reading him, stop looking to him for guidance or commentary. That said, where is the evidence? Now, if they say the Truth About Moscow website is where the evidence is, I haven't checked that out yet, and I don't know if I want to. There's a part of me that doesn't want to, but then there's a part of me that thinks, well, okay, if you have evidence, let's hear it. On the other hand, just from what I'm reading here, without there being any examples given, like, for instance, in the previous bullet point, uh, the timeline talks about Slavery As It Was, this book that Steve Wilkins and Doug Wilson co-authored. There are excerpts, specific, actual quotes, which you can go and verify. If you find you know, a copy that was printed and sold years and years ago, you know, back in 1996, if you find a copy of it and you look, and they didn't give page numbers, that would have been helpful, but you know, if you look, you can actually verify it. Does the book actually say what they are alleging it says or said? It's out of print now, but you could probably still find a used copy if you looked really hard. With this allegation about the Center for Biblical Counseling, it would have been helpful for them to throw in some specific examples instead of saying, well, just go check it out for yourself over at this website, which has all the primary source documentation. Also, too, you know, without some specific examples being given in this timeline right here, let me just make a couple of points that occur to me as I'm thinking about this. For one, don't we have laws in place here in the U.S. concerning mandatory reporting? Uh, the, the, the short answer is yes. The short answer is yes. If you work in certain capacities and you find out, for instance, that a child is being physically abused, sexually abused, you find out about that, you have under the law an obligation to report that to the civil authorities so that that child can be protected, so that child can be removed from a situation where they're being physically and sexually abused. Now, here's my question. If you have a, a situation in the church where a child or a spouse is being physically or sexually abused, where somebody is being threatened with violence or even potentially with you know, having their life taken from them, lest, you know, lest, lest we get the wrong idea, should there not be some kind of a mandatory reporting within the sphere of church authority? Or do we deny that the church has authority over these things? No, of course we, we shouldn't. You know, if we're Christians, we should believe that there are distinct, separate spheres of authority that God has instituted in the home, 
in the church and in civil society. And sometimes there's overlap. And I would say that, for instance, in the family, in the home, I, as a father, as a husband, want to know from my kids if their brother or their sister is being unkind or mean to them so that I can deal with it. I can't deal with it if I don't know about it. I want to know from my wife, from my children, if there's something that needs to be resolved or worked through or that I need to weigh in on, or if they know that I'm about to make a decision and I need some additional information that was you know, something that they were just you know, telling to one another in confidence, but now here's a situation where this is really important to making the right decision. They have a responsibility to bring that information to me. And I have a responsibility to be trustworthy with that, with that responsibility, with that information. I have a responsibility to be faithful and not to abuse the confidence that they place in me. Well, so also in the church, you know, the, the pastor might know some things of a very delicate nature about members of his congregation. And if the pastor is blackmailing church members to keep them from disagreeing with him or opposing him or holding him accountable, like in the case of Doug Wilson, well, that's a very, very serious charge. And you had better have the receipts. But if, on the other hand, the pastor does have authority or the leadership of the church, not just the pastor, but including the pastor, has a responsibility to shepherd and not just to entertain you on Sunday mornings or make sure that the church picnic in the summer goes off without a hitch, not just to counsel you and comfort you and let you cry on their shoulder when you're upset about things happening in your life. If they were, if they have a responsibility to give counsel and if there is potentially an issue of sin where you've sinned against other people in the church or you've sinned against outsiders or outsiders are sinning against you and the pastors need to know that in order to weigh in correctly, appropriately, and not speak out of turn or not be inconsiderate of you, well, that's a, that's a whole different ball of wax. And in that kind of a scenario, I absolutely do think, generally speaking, counselors should be able to share information from the private counseling sessions. Uh, and again, too, you know, consider a situation where you might have somebody who's suicidal and they're telling their counselor, I am fantasizing about ending my life. That's very, very serious. If the counselor doesn't feel equipped and they themselves now need counsel on how to handle this or what to do about it, and they can't go to anyone, and then this person ends their life, that is a worse outcome to my way of thinking than if you say up front, we may share some of the information from our counseling session with the leadership of the church so they can shepherd well. And quite frankly, if you're not comfortable with that because you don't trust the leadership of the church, you need to find a different church, plain and simple. If you if you trust the leadership of the church, if you trust the counseling on the front end, but then you're upset on the back end because of a legitimate exercise of those powers or those uh, options, well then, 
I think that's when you start needing to look deeper at either A, do we potentially have an abusive situation in the church, abusive power, which is serious and needs to be dealt with in a serious way, or do you have somebody just getting upset that they wanted to be affirmed, they didn't get affirmed, and now they're angry that they're being told, no, you shouldn't do that. No, that's sin. No, that's folly. That's not a good idea. You're sinning against your neighbor. You're sinning against other members of the church family or your family or the community or more to the point, God. So moving on. 2002, Wilson participates in the Auburn Avenue Conference in Louisiana that kicks off the Federal Vision controversy. In a few years' time, 2007, he will write the Joint Federal Vision Profession, which fleshes out the ideology and which he co-signs along with the other pastors who participated in the Auburn Avenue Conference. 2002, also, Wilson misrepresents his publishing company, Canon Press, to the local tax board. 2002 to 2010, these NAPARC, N-A-P-A-R-C, denominations study Wilson's Federal Vision Theology and write position papers condemning it. The Presbyterian Church of America, PCA, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, the United Reformed Churches of North America, URCNA, the Reformed Church in the United States, RCUS, the Reformed Presbyterian Churches of North America, RPCNA, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, ARPC, the Presbyterian Reformed Church, PRC. So a quick note on this. Let me point out that I was doing a little bit more digging beyond just this Facebook page because I wanted to see, okay, is this true, right? Is this true that he doesn't have any formal theological training? And if so, did he get uh, a theological education just kind of off to the side, but you know, he was studying philosophy or he was studying you know, English literature or he was studying you know, whatever. Was he studying history? What, what did he study? What does he have his degree in? And you know, is it true? So I, I looked up Doug Wilson's Wikipedia, and one of the things that I found <clears throat> that I thought was rather interesting with regards to the federal vision business uh, you know, there's a paragraph here under career. It says, and I quote, Wilson's views on covenant theology have caused some controversy as part of the federal vision theology, partly because of its perceived similarity to the new perspective on Paul, which Wilson does not fully endorse, though he has praised some tenets. The reformed Presbyterian church in the United States declared his views on the subject to be heretical. Now, okay, that sounds really serious. And there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reformed Presbyterian America, US, North America, you know, variations here. There's a lot of various denominations being listed here. Seven uh, in the Facebook page post we're reading through. But then there's also this one, which is distinct from those, the RPCUS, which is referenced, uh, by the way, lower down in the Facebook post from examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho. But this RP, 
C-U-S denomination. I looked it up. And for one thing, it dissolved in 2020. When it dissolved, it joined what's called the Vanguard Presbytery. But before it dissolved, it had all of three congregations. So, you know, it's not to say it's no big deal, but it is to say, you know, it started with, uh, it looks like in 2015, before Moorcroft's departure uh, with eight churches, one domestic mission church, one foreign mission. At the beginning of 2020, only three churches remained. And the beginning of this church, by the way, was back in 1983, Chalcedon Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, left the PCA because of a whole bunch of controversy regarding theonomy and post-millennialism. Groups within PCA's North Georgia Presbytery complained, according to Wikipedia's article on the RPCUS, they complained that Chalcedon Presbyterian Church was being too strict in its requirements and that it was going beyond the Westminster Confession. And that complaint was dismissed, but this says Chalcedon sought to become secure in its position. They inquired into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but found that they had not yet settled on how to handle theonomy, so they formed their own denomination. Okay, well, these are the guys who are saying Doug Wilson's a heretic. And I, I look at that and I think, well, um, I, maybe you think he is, but it seems as though y'all are uh, not quite as big of a block as is being implied. And it seems as though someone wanting to cancel Doug Wilson is making a mountain out of a molehill and you're having called him heretic. Also too, it's interesting that there's a controversy surrounding them being excessively strict. I don't know the details of that. This is complicated, but you guys are being overly strict and then you're trying to join a denomination that you think is a good fit, but then they're like, well, actually, you, you guys really haven't figured out where you're at with theonomy. And then they dissolve and then and they you know join a different denomination. They dissolve their denomination after having lost several member churches. And so it's a curious thing, right? It's just, it seems like there are uh, some question marks surrounding some of the critics of Doug Wilson in that case in particular, for instance. As to Federal Vision, as to the new perspective on Paul, what to make of all that, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I don't quite know what to make of all that. I don't quite fully understand either Federal Vision or the new perspective on Paul. I don't agree with paedo-baptism or paedo-communion in the sense that Doug Wilson holds to it. But, uh, you know, other than that and some other qualifiers here and there with regards to social commentary, you know, I... I don't know what to make of the federal vision business or the new perspective on Paul, but I I think canceling him with regards to both of those, uh, you know, basically putting that into this write-up here, this write-up would have been stronger and more informed and more informative with an explanation of why the new perspective on Paul and why federal vision uh, are 
not so good. And I think that comes later, but I'm just saying up front would have been stronger here where you're saying, uh, look at the list of seven Presbyterian denominations, which are opposed to Doug Wilson and the Federal Vision business. And and look at this one who's saying he's a heretic. Like, oh, hmm. 2003. Feasible means that it is possible to take. That's a quote. Feasible means that it is possible to take. Wilson preaches a sermon, December 28th, 2003, in which he references his father's book, The Principles of War, a handbook on strategic evangelism, and explains his own strategy for his, quote, spiritual takeover, end quote, of Moscow, Idaho. And there's a transcript of the sermon in a link below. 2003, also, 94 ecclesiastical charges are brought against Wilson by his own denomination, the CREC. The report by Wilson's peers and fellow elders also liken Wilson to a cult leader. Quote, tyrannical abuse of power like this was the trademark of Jonestown and the Branch Davidians. It is not acceptable behavior for evangelical ministers of the gospel, end quote. Some of the charges include paying for illegal gambling operations out of church benevolence funds, failing to appropriately discipline elders who were parents of New St. Andrews students who ran a drug ring at New St. Andrews, covering for the alleged crimes of gasoline and pipe bombs, malfeasance, including financial malfeasance, serious clergy malpractice, obstruction of justice, conduct unbecoming a church officer, pastoral tyranny, abuse, manipulation, dereliction of duty, threatening sinful anger, stealing, violation of fiduciary trust, hypocrisy. There's a last note here that the CREC denomination created by Doug Wilson in 1998 and stacked with loyalists ultimately dropped all 94 ecclesiastical charges against Wilson. However, the casino operator made a sworn affidavit of having been paid off by Doug Wilson out of the church's benevolence fund on a letter written by Wilson on Christ Church letterhead. Westminster professor Dr. R. Scott Clark discussed the 94 ecclesiastical charges brought against Wilson in this illuminating interview in 2020. And there's another link. But I don't know. Again, there's a lot here, but I don't know what this business about illegal gambling operations is. Uh, Also, too, failing to appropriately discipline elders who were parents of New St. Andrews students. Uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a question mark. You know, that's a question mark for me. Is it the parents who needed disciplined or was it the students themselves who needed discipline? Did the students themselves running a drug ring at New St. Andrews get disciplined? I would presume so because you're not saying there was a failure to appropriately discipline the students. There was a failure to appropriately discipline the elders but there again, I mean, this this is a bit of a, a difficult thing to figure out because it really shouldn't be parents who are punished when their children misbehave unless the parents were actively promoting, enabling, facilitating, running interference for the bad behavior. If that's the case, well then, okay, talk about the indiscretions of the parents. If it's an underage child who is misbehaving and the parents are refusing to get a handle on it. They're refusing to discipline 
They've been made aware and they're refusing to deal with it. Well, then that's an issue. But if the parents are parents of adult children who are now in college and those adult children get into some trouble, does it make sense to punish the parents? There's a question mark there, right? An elder, an overseer, a deacon must be able to manage their own household well. If their adult children are part of that household, then that doesn't necessarily mean that those kids are always going to behave well. But if it's a secret to the elders and it was a total shock to them, but then it gets handled when it becomes known, that's what we should be looking at. Yeah, period. Maybe just that period. Without delving too much into this one and the details, because again, there are constraints of time in this episode, that's what I'll say about that point. Covering for the alleged crimes of gasoline and pipe bombs, okay, that needs more expansion. What's this about gas and pipe bombs? Is this teenage boys playing around in the woods on private property and just getting into a little bit of trouble and having some fun? Is this planning a terrorist attack in trying to take over the city of Moscow, Idaho? You know, if it's the latter, well, then you, let's talk about that, right? Like, let, let's, let's dig into that. But if the ecclesiastical charge against Doug Wilson has to do with some teenage boys playing around on private property just for the fun of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's just not enough detail gone into on this point here. And I think that's concerning. It's concerning that it comes up and there are questions that we should ask. And there's, you know, definitely, you know, I, there's definitely more that I want to know, but, you know, actually the controversy concerning slavery as it was, and then later on, yeah, more recently, Doug Wilson's essays from that book, minus Steve Wilkins, got republished. They got edited and modified and adjusted and updated and all that. And then they got republished under the title Black and Tan. And actually in Black and Tan, Wilson addresses the controversy surrounding slavery as it was, the earlier book. And he says, you know, we pulled it from publication. We pulled it from the shelves. And I regret us having published it as we published it in the state that it was in and the condition and the form that we published it. But here's what I was trying to get at. Here's why we wrote those essays. Because the pro-life movement was really, really upset about abortion in America. And you did have attacks on abortion providers. You did have efforts to you know, potentially blow up abortion clinics, murder abortion doctors. And there was the potential for another civil war over this question of abortion. As far as the pro-life folks were concerned, they were willing and ready to fight another civil war over it. And so then what Wilson says he was trying to do was he was trying to go back to the first civil war and talk about his problem with us having had a civil war to bring an end to slavery. He didn't think it needed to be a civil war that brought an end to slavery. He thought it could have been ended through other means, through peaceful means. And the point was not to relitigate 
the first civil war or slavery or emancipation so much as to make a point about having another civil war over abortion. And insofar as he was very dead set against having the first civil war or having a second subsequent civil war regarding abortion, we should not read into this bullet point to my way of thinking. If I'm right, from what I understand, we should not read into this some kind of an insinuation that Doug Wilson was encouraging his followers to make pipe bombs and, you know, let's figure out how we can take violently with terroristic acts, Moscow, Idaho, and then the whole state and then the whole country. And I just, that doesn't fit what I know anyways, though, of course, just like a book can be uh, pulled from publication and then you can take and edit the essays that were your part of that and make them say something uh, much more careful. You know, there, there could have been all kinds of things that were said earlier on that gave certain followers or families of followers the wrong idea. Who knows? I, I don't personally know. I'll put it that way. But that is a serious thing to throw in a bullet point and say so little about, as with several of these other uh, items in this timeline. As far as, con- you know, as far as some of these others, malfeasance, including financial malfeasance. Again, some examples would be good to throw in here. Serious clergy malpractice. Again, examples would be good. Even just one. One example would be helpful if you're going to throw that up as a bullet point. Obstruction of justice. Well, what are you talking about? Conduct unbecoming a church officer. Well, that seems like it's a bit redundant. Like you're just trying to have as many as possible, which implies that maybe the actual charges themselves are not that strong. If you need 94, but a lot of these are redundant, uh, that, that implies that the individual charges themselves are not very strong, in my opinion. You know, pastoral tyranny, is that distinct from abuse? Is that distinct from threatening, you know, stealing. Wow. Stealing what was stolen again. Uh, you know, an example needs to be given there. If you're going to make a, a charge, if you're going to make a claim there, you really should be putting in an example of that violation of fiduciary trust. Is that separate and distinct from the malfeasance hypocrisy? Okay. Well, that's, that's a serious charge. But again, can you give us an example? Now, it's interesting. The very last item on this one is the explanation that all of the ecclesiastical charges against Wilson were dropped. But that's not really given any credit because they say he started the denomination and stacked it with loyalists. So you're supposed to make much of the fact that his own denomination brought these charges against him. But really, was it his own denomination? Was it his denomination when the charges were brought, but not his denomination? You know, like I, I, I don't quite, I don't quite understand how that works. Was it his denomination when the charges were brought and dismissed, or was it not his denomination when the charges were brought? In a certain sense, you know, like what, what's the, what's, what's the deal here? You know, it clearly wasn't his entire denomination bringing the charges. 
what would be more correct, it would seem to me, is some within the denomination that he started brought 94 charges against him. And yet, ultimately, all charges were dropped. Were they dropped by the men who had brought those charges after they talked things through and they realized, hey, actually, you know what, these, these are not all what they appear to be because we didn't have all the information. We didn't have all the facts. It looked bad, but actually... There are good sound explanations that clear all this up. It seems to be implied that the whole denomination swept this under the rug because he had the votes. And if that's true, again, you know, if if these were charges brought correctly against him, that he was abusive, that he was tyrannical, that he was threatening, like did he actually threaten anyone, either overtly or covertly, that's important. Was he abusing someone? That's important to know. Was he being was he being a tyrant? That's important to know. Was he stealing? That's important to know. You know, the totality of these charges, if all true, would be disqualifying. Absolutely. But the charges are either true or they're not true. And if they're true, then it's a curious thing that there's the redundancy that there is between several of them. It's also curious that the specifics and examples of the same are not being presented alongside the charges themselves. Moving on. 2005, the documentary My Town is aired. This film documents the growing tension between the townspeople of Moscow who have come to recognize their town has been targeted for a, quote, spiritual takeover by Wilson and his followers. The film focuses on Wilson's pro-slavery views as presented at a history conference on the University of Idaho campus, hosted by Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins. Wilkins co-authored the book Southern Slavery as it was in 1996 with Wilson and his co-founder of the League of the South, Doug Wilson's spiritual takeover plan, Royals Idaho College Town. And there's a link there. Again, based on the excerpts from before, I wouldn't necessarily say those are pro-slavery views. I would say there's a moderating effort to say slavery is not as categorically one-size-fits-all, always what the people who are most against slavery in the U.S. and the southern states uh, like to portray. But, okay, there was a documentary. (laughs) I guess you could go look that up if you want to watch that and know more about that tension between the townspeople and Wilson and his, and this is followers, Wilson and his followers, are they church members? Are they attendants to the college? Are they, you know, like followers, like you're still, you're still working off of the premise that he's a cult leader. And if he is a cult leader, okay, then, you know, call them followers. If it's a church though, you know, it would be more appropriate to say, Wilson and his church. But moving on, 2005. Also, Wilson is caught by the IRS skimming $3 signs through his publishing company, Canon Press. The IRS then revokes Canon Press's 501c3 status. That's pretty serious. What's that about? I would like to know more. I don't have time to research it in as much depth right now, as I should like to in the long run, but that's 
pretty serious if that's the case. But then on the other hand, too, if the 501c3 is, it's complicated. I'll put it that way. It's complicated if there were some expenses which were debatable. I would like to take a look at what those expenses were. What was the money used for? How much money? When? And what's the explanation? I don't necessarily take the IRS's word for it, knowing that the IRS has in the past 10 to 20 years been caught singling out conservative 501c3s, conservatives in general, for audits and either denying 501c3 status on the front end or revoking it. And very often what you find is that there is a bias against conservatives and there's a bias against uh, you know, Christian organizations, conservative Christian organizations, because that's going to lead to conservative uh, political action. So I think more details needed there, but there you have it. Uh, also in 2005, accounts begin to surface of a sexual predator, Stephen Sittler, having molested several children of CREC members. Sittler is the son of a wealthy CREC supporter. Wilson writes a letter to the presiding judge in the case, Judge John Stegner, pleading for leniency for Sittler. Some years later, 2011, Doug Wilson officiates the marriage of Stephen Sittler to a young woman from Christchurch and encourages them to have children despite presiding Judge Stegner having warned that the couple having children would bring legal scrutiny due to Sittler being a fixated pedophile, a clinical diagnosis of pedophiles who are at high risk of reoffending. After Sittler and his wife have a child, Sittler testifies to police that he is sexually stimulated by their infant son. Like that's that's pretty disturbing stuff. That that is really disturbing stuff. That is just without question. Blah, blah. So you have a serial child molester, Stephen Sittler, who's the son of a wealthy donor to the denomination that Wilson founded. Wilson asks the judge to be lenient. That letter may have a conflict of interest all wrapped up in it. If the evidence against the son of this C-Rex supporter was strong, and if he should have gone to jail for a long time, and Wilson intervened because the boy's parents were wealthy donors. Boy, howdy, that sounds an awful lot like partiality. It does. And partiality is something we are commanded expressly to not engage in, period. If that's what it was, that was a grievous error. And let me put it to you in these terms. If Wilson would not write a very similar letter or the same letter for a man in their circles whose parents were poor, for a man in their denomination who himself was poor, who didn't have good connections, giving a lot of money to the cause. If Wilson would not write a similar letter pleading for lenience, why? And how is that not partiality? And I'm not saying he wouldn't. I mean, that's the question, right? Would he have... And if he wouldn't have, what makes it appropriate in this case? I can't think of 
anything. James talks about partiality in the New Testament. If a poor brother comes in and you tell him, you sit at my feet, sit over there in the corner, and a rich brother comes in wearing fine clothes and you say, hey, here, please sit in the seat of honor. That's partiality. Don't do it. Don't engage in that. And Doug Wilson, if he did, he was in error. Now, some of the rest of this, about years later, some years later, 2011, well, that's six years later, Stephen Sittler marries a young woman from Christchurch and encourages them to have children. Is that a problem that this guy would get married? Is that a, like, here's the question. What should have been done with the young man when it was found out that he had, he had been molesting children? What should have been done with him? Should he have been put in prison for life? Should he have been executed? Should he have never been allowed to get married? Should he have been sterilized? Should he have been told, all right, you, you can get married, but you're not allowed to have children? Should he have been discouraged from having children? All right, you can get married, but if you start having kids, we're going to church discipline you out. Ideally, what rehabilitation, if it's possible, and that's kind of a big deal to the whole Christian message that Christ came to save sinners. That's kind of the whole idea of repentance, that you're turning away from your sins. If you didn't have sins, you wouldn't have anything to repent of, and you wouldn't need a Savior. But isn't the big idea that somebody's turning away from sin towards obedience, towards faithfulness? And I'll give you a, a different example of sexual sin and someone coming out of sexual sin. What about gay men and lesbian women who, for however many years, they live a homosexual lifestyle and conservative Christians reading their Bibles, believing that God's word is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, say, we love you and you need to repent. And there's grace in Christ for you, but you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins. And what if you have, and we do, lesbians and gay men who turn away from a homosexual lifestyle and they repent of their sins and they find grace and salvation and sanctification in Christ and then they meet someone of the opposite sex and fall in love and they get married and they raise a family. You know, what will we say? Will we say, you shouldn't get married because you have sexual sin in your past, you shouldn't ever get married. You ruined it. You ruined yourself and you will never be able to have a healthy marriage and you'll never be able to raise children in a God-honoring way. So even though you've turned away from your homosexual lifestyle, your homosexual past, we say you're not allowed to get married. And we say if you do get married, you're not allowed to have children. Or instead, do we say you have turned away from a homosexual lifestyle, you've fallen in love, you've gotten married, and now here's what God's word says about marriage and children and the family and home. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have children. Jeremiah 29, take a wife and have children. 
raise sons and daughters. And if the person has really repented of their sins and turned away from their sins, don't you celebrate that? Don't you cheer that? Don't you encourage that? Of course you do. Of course you do. You don't say, because you sinned, therefore, there is no hope for you. You can't repent. You can't turn from your old lifestyle, your sins. You can't find grace. You can't find forgiveness. You can't find new life. As Christians, we don't say that. Such were some of you, Paul writes. So whoever's writing this timeline and implying that there's something in Wilson encouraging marriage, facilitating, officiating the marriage, or encouraging this man and his now wife to have children, does that make Wilson culpable? It's complicated. It's complicated. More needs to be known. But Judge Stegner, having warned that the couple having children would bring legal scrutiny due to Sittler being a fixated pedophile, I... Okay, scrutinize away. Scrutinize away. But, again, what are the alternatives? Execution, life in prison, castration, sterilization. Answer me that. Moving on. 2007. Wilson writes and co-signs the Joint Federal Vision Profession, JFVP, solidifying his adherence to Federal Vision theology. Now, here we get into what Federal Vision is. The tenets of Federal Vision theology are a two-step justification process wherein adherents maintain their salvation by works, which Federal Visionists describe as obedience, faithfulness, and or covenant faithfulness. In other words, baptism regenerates Step one, and then salvation is maintained by one's works. Step two, baptismal regeneration, as noted, this is believed to be step one of Federal Visionists' two-step justification process. Pedo-communion, also known as infant communion. Emphasis on political involvement. Theonomy, i.e. a long-range goal toward installing a Christian theocracy. So there's Federal Vision, and again, due to time. I can't delve into all of what to make of all of that, but there is much that could be said. There's much that should be said. I'm just not going to say it right now. Also 2007, on the error of Federal Vision, Dr. R.C. Sproul Sr. passionately addresses the 35th Annual Presbyterian PCA General Assembly, which convenes to study the error. And he says, I quote, I can't fathom why there's any hesitancy about rejecting Federal Vision. There's too much at stake. This is the gospel we're talking about, end quote. 2015, accounts begin to surface of another sexual predator in the C-Rec, Jamin White. White, a seminary student at the Greyfriars Seminary, which was founded by Wilson, raped a 14-year-old girl whose family were Christ Church members. Wilson's associate pastor, Toby Sumter, and fellow C-Rec pastor, Peter Lightheart, both write letters to the judge presiding over White's case pleading for leniency for White. Wilson writes a letter to the arresting officer stating that White is not a sexual predator. White is charged with felony injury to a child and sentenced to four years in prison. After his release, White marries a Christchurch member who later flees from White after he attempts to strangle her. Also 2015, Wilson's fellow C-Rec elder Peter Lightheart publicly apologizes to Jamin White's rape victim Natalie Greenfield, who was groomed and raped by White beginning when Natalie was 14. 
Also 2015, multiple instances of plagiarism are discovered in the omnibus materials sold through Veritas Press, the largest homeschooling publisher in the U.S. Doug Wilson is the general editor for Omnibus. 2016, Christchurch member Natalie Greenfield, who was groomed by seminary student Jamin White beginning when she was 13 and White was in his mid-20s, shares her story of being blamed for her rape and pressured to stay silent about it by Doug Wilson, who was her pastor. Okay, so let's let's take all of these four points from 2015 to 2016 so far, and let's talk about it briefly. For one, if Jamin White, a seminary student, raped a 14-year-old girl, that's monstrous. And I have no reason to believe that that's not what happened, but I don't know this story. There's a lot, right? There's you know, if, in case it's not clear, like there's a lot here in this whole timeline and I'm not an expert on any one of these stories or incidents. I'm not an expert on Doug Wilson. I'm not an expert on blog and may blog or Canon plus or Canon press. I've looked at a lot of their materials. I've read a lot of, uh, what Doug Wilson has written and, I know he's a controversial figure. I've seen some of his panel discussions. I know he's a controversial figure. I think this needs to be considered in juxtaposition with the earlier incident surrounding the son of a you know um, major CREC donor or or what have you. You know where you've got Stephen Sittler and his. Father, I would presume, being a wealthy CREC donor in 2005, having molested several children of CREC members. And then you fast forward 10 years, and you've got a seminary student at Gray Friars having raped a 14 year old girl. You know, in both cases, I think you can discern a pattern of response. The response seems to be, if I may, let's be lenient with the offenders. And the allegation in this case is that Doug Wilson blamed Natalie Greenwood for having been raped. And also that White is stated by Doug Wilson to not be a sexual predator. He is tried, he's convicted of felony injury to a child and sentenced to four years in prison. And then when he gets out, he marries a Christchurch member who he then uh, also attempts to strangle and she flees him. If Peter Lightheart and Doug Wilson downplayed Jamin White's behavior and blamed Natalie Greenwood, I don't know what basis they would have for doing that. I don't know what justification, if any, they might provide in saying, here's why, right? Here were the facts of the situation. I don't know. I don't know what the details are of the situation. But let me just say categorically, rape is heinous. And if some man or woman, boy or girl, is raped, we ought never to blame the rape victim. 
That said, is rape the best thing to call it if you have a scenario in which someone is being seduced and they are underage at 14, you know, legally, we say that's statutory rape. Also, though, historically, and this is a this is a complexity, and I'm not saying I know what to do with it, but a complexity of, let's say, the nativity story and also ancient history is that it has not always been the case that a 14-year-old teenage girl is regarded as a child. There is a lot of talk that I have heard. There's a lot of material I've read speculating that the Virgin Mary was 14 when she had Jesus, when, when she gave birth to Jesus. We know that in our day, even just in the past several decades, I mean, th- these are statistics you can look at and you can know for a fact. The average age of marriage has shifted from decades ago being 19 and 20 for young men and young women to now being 29 and 30. And we know that in a legal sense, 18 is when someone is legally an adult. We recognize in our society they're legally an adult. Why 18? Why not 30? You know, in, in some tradition, as we were talking about in yesterday's episode about Ezekiel, men under 30 weren't even allowed to read Song of Songs. Men under 30 weren't even allowed to read the book of Ezekiel, or at least the beginning of Ezekiel and the end of Ezekiel, because there was explicit sexual content in part. And rabbis and elders said, you're not going to know how to interpret this allegorically or symbolically. You're going to get impure thoughts, and you're going to have those impure thoughts run away with you. And so we don't want you to read this until you have come of age. And since Ezekiel was 30, when he had these visions, we'll say, traditionally, at 30, you must be ready or, you, you know, at, at least at 30, if Ezekiel was 30, it's okay for you to read these things. And yet, on the other hand, we know that in our past century of American history, it was not uncommon for 19 and 20 year olds to get married. And so it's a curious thing to imagine a scenario where you could have, if we were following the tradition, young men getting married at 1920 and being married for 10 years and not allowed to read Song of Songs or not, you know, encouraged in any, in any event, not encouraged to read Song of Songs or Ezekiel talking about sex. And yet they have a wife and they are presumably having relations with their wife, but they're not allowed to read in the Bible talk of sexual relations. And it's also a very curious thing if some posit that historically, culturally, in the context of Palestine, at the time Jesus was born, it was not uncommon for 14, 15, 16-year-old girls to be married, to get married. And so, you know, that that has to be considered in some form or fashion in all of this. It isn't to say that Natalie Greenwood wasn't raped, but it is to say that there is increasingly in our day a lot of confusion 
I think we can say that safely, whether you're a conservative or you're a progressive, we have to agree. There's a lot of confusion in our day about where the boundary lines should be drawn as far as sexual ethics. And so you have a seminary student who at a bare minimum is engaging in sexual immorality with Natalie Greenwood because they're not married. I mean, that's a, that's a bare minimum. But as to the whole Me Too movement of the past five plus years, five to 10 years, it's very, very confusing to look at what the culture is saying, where you have increasingly in scholarly papers and in news articles, popular you know, media outlets, the questioning of whether pedophilia should be stigmatized, whether it should be outlawed, because love is love. They can't help it. They were born this way. You know, you open Pandora's box with regards to homosexuality and now with transgenderism and next is pedophilia. And even with regards to Disney, let's say, down in Florida, being very upset about the so-called don't say gay bill, saying that children under eight should not be subjected to radical gender theory and explicit sex education as young as eight. And we do have, we do have 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, if we want to call them children, children, certainly teenagers, having sexual relations with one another and experimenting and being encouraged to experiment sexually with one another by many in the public education system on the premise that that is liberation. That's, that's the next installment of the Enlightenment project of the past several hundred years. And we've got to liberate these children from social norms, from sexual ethics, and only once they are fully liberated will we have peace and prosperity and all the good things. And so that's what's going on in the broader culture. And then you come into a church situation and all the rules change, but you're not exactly sure what they change to. And it's confusing. It's confusing outside of the church. It's confusing inside of the church. And what is our fixed reference point? When everything is changing and being reinvented and morphing, what is the fixed reference point? Is the fixed reference point consent? Well, that's tricky because someone will say, well, this person is not capable under a certain age. They're not capable of giving informed consent. Or they were preyed on, they were manipulated, they were seduced, they were Here's this term that a lot of folk on the left don't like when it is applied to public school teachers or drag queens or their media, grooming. And what is grooming? Grooming is very much like the life of Camillus in Plutarch, where you've got a school teacher who comes up with this clever plan to deliver the city that is under siege by the Romans, his city, He's going to deliver the city to the Roman general, Camillus. And the way he's going to do this, because he's a teacher, he's a school teacher, you could say a public school teacher, he takes all of the boys outside the city walls for exercise. And he takes them farther each time, a little farther, a little farther, a little farther, until next thing you know, he's taking them all the way into the Roman camp and asking to see Camillus and offering in exchange for a handsome reward, 
offering these children as hostages to the Romans, who then will be able to demand the surrender of the city. That's what grooming is. But if we say someone is legally an adult at, let's say, 18, and then someone else is not legally an adult at 14, you know, six months prior, and I don't know how old this uh, White character was, Jamin White was, but if we say Jamin White was 18, he had just turned 18, six months prior, it wouldn't have been considered rape. It might might have been considered rape, but it is definitely considered rape the day he turns 18, so long as the object of interest, this 14-year-old girl or 13-year-old girl, is underage. Now, there is a claim here that the grooming began when the girl was 13 and White was in his mid-20s, so that's not where we find ourselves. We don't find ourselves with Jamin White being 18 and two days old and everything had started when he was still technically a minor, legally a minor. But it is to say it's it's a bit complicated in our day to figure out exactly where the boundary lines are. Now, at a bare minimum, those outside the church and many inside the church will say consent. Consent is the line. But then we say, who is in a position to offer informed consent? Who has the maturity to be able to know what it is that they are consenting to? And yet it's confusing because when it's children, so-called, when it's teenagers, and by that I mean under the age of 18, both of them, and they're both consenting, well, that's one thing. And we don't put that categorically in the rape category. We don't put that categorically in the felonious assault category. And yet it's confusing exactly what standards we are setting and whether those standards are fixed and what they're based on, what fixed standard our standards, which are obviously not fixed, otherwise we wouldn't be changing them or debating them, are set on. And so where it's complicated is without knowing the details, I'll ask you the question, is it possible that you have somebody 13 or 14 years old flirting back and forth with some seminary student who's in his mid-20s, and there's not enough supervision, and then they get physical, and then she is brokenhearted about it because this is not going anywhere, and she feels remorse, and she's upset. And so then she says, I was raped. I was seduced, and I was raped, and was it a violent assault, or was it seduction? Was it manipulation? We don't know. Or at least I don't know. I, I don't know enough of the details of the situation or the story. If it was a violent assault, then in no ways do you say that the woman brought it on herself. If it was seduction, then I say it's complicated. And and I don't just say that it's complicated because <laughs> uh, you know it's a moving target culturally right now thanks to the sexual revolution, thanks to the LGBTQ plus movement. But I say that it's complicated because no longer are we quoting book, chapter, verse to look at what God's word says. And do we even know where else we're looking? We're looking at the letter of the law in 
the U.S. code or in state law, and then you're looking at the particulars of the situation. And we're knowing that a great many things that God says to not do are being celebrated and renegotiated and apologized for and embraced. And if you don't embrace them, then you're a bigot. And if you talk about them as if there is a fixed standard based on what God's word says, then you're a bigot. And if you say don't to what the culture wants to do, you're a bigot. But then if you say yes to what the culture doesn't want you to do, well, then you're ignorant and dangerous. And it's a mess. It is a mess. Are there scenarios and circumstances in which a 14-year-old could conceivably get married historically or in our context and it not be rape? Can we support that from the scriptures? Do we have to appeal to tradition? Do we have to look at norms, past or present? It's a mess. It's a complicated thing. But I'll say this. If, in any measure, you have Doug Wilson being lenient or Peter Lightheart being lenient with a seminary student just because this guy is older and a man and attending their seminary and he's a seminary student and he's got good grades and he's respectful towards all of the professors and the leaders and the administration and pastors and elders and all the rest, if he's given lenience for those reasons and yet the 14-year-old girl is discounted, dismissed, just because she's a 14-year-old girl told to keep quiet about it, even if it's open shut, well, that is that is damning. That is absolutely scandalous and a grievous thing. That's a sin. That's wicked. And if Peter Lightheart apologized publicly to Natalie Greenfield, that's a big deal. But this is to say too, not specifically to Doug Wilson or specifically to any of the institutions he's led or founded or run or influenced, but generally speaking, this is just a mess in our day. It's a mess. And again, as with the earlier case from 2005, what are we proposing should be done? You say, hey, we want the harshest possible sentence. Well, then that's death. And you say, well, okay, maybe not the death penalty. We're not for that. Well, then what? Life in prison? Castration? Sterilization? And by what standard? What, what is our standard? What is, what is our fixed standard for a response here? Because certainly feels as though it's impossible to be blameless by all accounts. So that's all I'll say on that one for the time being in any event. 2016, moving on down the timeline. The organization CrossPolitik is formed in Moscow, Idaho. CrossPolitik is comprised of three hosts, Toby Sumter, Gabe Wrench, and David Shannon, also known as Chocolate Knox. It's a weird name, by the way. Uh, while CrossPolitik does not explicitly bear Doug Wilson's name, it nonetheless functions for all intents and purposes as one of Wilson's media arms and advances his ideology. Two of the CrossPolitik hosts are church officers in the church that Wilson pastors, Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. The third host is a member of Wilson's church and also a producer who creates media content for CrossPolitik, as well as several other media outlets associated with Wilson. 2016 also, Doug Wilson writes an article called Triune Botherations, 
in which he expresses the heresy of eternal subordination of the sun, ESS, also known as subordinationism. He goes on to say in the article that he is not expressing subordinationism, a bit of gaslighting wordsmithery at play there. ESS, a 21st century reboot of an old heresy, is being used by the neo-patriarchal movement to undergird their view of authoritarian, marital, and societal dynamics in which men are large and in charge and women stay quiet, do the dishes, and stay subjugated. If you are keeping score, you know that ESS is the second serious and primary gospel error associated with Wilson, with Federal Vision being the first. Now, let me say this in brief. Matthew Barrett has an excellent book, Simply Trinity, which you should check out. Uh, also, James A. Dolezal has an excellent book called All That Is in God, which is, I would say, denser, more complex, definitely deep, deep stuff, not watered down at all. Uh, both of those works together have made me uh, leery of ESS, uh, as well as social Trinitarianism. I think both of those are just a, a mystery and a, a total unknown to a lot of Christians in America. I think a lot of us just do not know what to make of these kinds of things at all. But Trinitarianism has been hijacked by a lot of folk on all sides to try and advocate their other positions. And I think when that's done, it is not so good. Now, if you hold to an odd notion of the Trinity and you're just not very well versed and there's not a lot of people around who seem to be very well versed in these things and something slips out and your views of other things or slips in to your views on Trinitarianism, which is not correct, which is an error and it needs corrected, well then, are we educating ourselves? I think we ought to, uh, but I, I think a lot of us are not uh, enough to be able to partake in those debates. Look at the historic creeds of the church. Look at the Apostles' Creed. Look at the Nicene Creed. Look at the Chalcedonian Creed. Look at the Athanasian Creed. Are we familiarizing ourselves with good theology to where we recognize the terms, we understand what the ramifications are for tweaking or adjusting or substituting this, that, or the other point? Uh, for my part, I am against trying to argue for the patriarchy using Trinitarianism. I have heard it done. I've seen it done. I don't think that follows. I don't think that's sound. Uh, I don't think that's the best of arguments from the scriptures. Now, I do think you can make sound arguments from the scriptures concerning patriarchy, and I am patriarchal, but I do not believe it is good or wise to try and make arguments for patriarchy from Trinitarianism or a particular flavor of Trinitarianism. Let me just say that. Moving on, 2017, Wilson is officially rebuked by his own denomination, the CREC, which he founded for his mishandling of the Jamin White and Stephen Sittler sexual abuse cases. The report linked here is devastating. 
I don't know if it actually is devastating, but certainly the people putting together this timeline think that it's devastating. The presiding minister's report on the Stephen Sittler and Jamin White sex abuse cases, August 15th, 2017. There's a link. Uh, also, to important to note, this is uh, being published in 2017, which is really the peak of the Me Too movement. And that's worth noting. There were a lot of things that came to light from that point from 2016 to the present, which, you know, it, it, it felt a bit like a witch hunt where, you know, some will say, you know, they'll look back on witch hunts of hundreds of years ago and they'll say, ah, that's awful, right? Witches don't exist. (laughs) You know, and, and look at all these innocent people who were ruined and punished and destroyed because they were accused of being witches or, or they were accused of witchcraft and how ignorant. And, and I would say that there are such things as, as witches. My great grandmother actually uh, was part of a, a coven. Uh, you know, th- there are such things as witches. That doesn't mean that everybody who's accused of being a witch is a witch. Sometimes you have malicious folk who want to destroy someone. They have an agenda against someone they don't like someone. They want something that someone else has. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to get political power or wealth or status or attention. And so they're trying to destroy someone. And then also, too, uh, what you have when the fever is up on those kinds of drives, you have a lot of people who are going along with it because they're just so afraid that they're going to be implicated if they don't go along with it. And truth is a casualty if due process is not adhered to and afforded those who are accused. And so no, you know, quite simply, no, you can't just believe the accuser because there is such a thing as false accusation. And sometimes things are complicated. Sometimes things are not complicated and we make them complicated because we don't want to do justice. And yet we're commanded to by God. But sometimes justice means you have to (laughs) let somebody who has been accused uh, off the hook or you have to give them the benefit of the doubt because the evidence is not there. The accusation is definitely there, but the evidence isn't there. And when that's the case, if we go about destroying anyone and everyone who says, ah, you know, we, we need due process here, what you will get is the reign of terror during the French Revolution. And I think that's that's what a lot of folks in the cultural left, in the academic left, in the theological left, in the political left, in the United States of America want. They do want the reign of terror. And it doesn't start with rolling the guillotines out. It starts with character assassination. So this isn't to say that Doug Wilson handled these situations appropriately. It is just to say, let's put this in context. This is happening. This is all being brought to light and being handled at the peak of the Me Too movement, which, you know, it, it just consider the case of Johnny Depp sometimes makes victims, sometimes makes victims in claiming to go after predators. You know, as, as the facts come out in the Johnny Depp case, it looks decreasingly as though Johnny Depp is the victimizer. It looks increasingly as though he behaved badly 
but was as much or more a victim as Amber Heard. And so then, you know, this is this is why we have due process. This is why we have a, a justice system. It's very expensive, but even more expensive is a scenario in which there's total lawlessness and anarchy on the one hand, or a scenario in which justice is swift and unsure and brutal, and all you need to de- destroy somebody is make a charge and make it make an accusation. But moving on. 2017, Wilson reaffirms his adherence to federal vision theology in an article misleadingly titled Federal Vision No Mas. No Mas in Spanish means no more. The title suggests he has repented of or rejected federal vision theology. However, in the article, while he says he no longer wants to use the term federal vision, he goes on to say that he still affirms all the tenets of the theology as laid out in the 2007 Joint Federal Vision Profession, which he wrote and co-signed. 2019, in the Calvinist Baptist realm, Wilson cultivates a number of strategic alliances. This acceptance of Wilson by leading figures in the Calvinist Baptist realm causes his influence to spread rapidly. These strategic alliances include Tom Askell, Founders Ministries, Josh Boos, G3 Conferences, Jeff Durbin, Apologia, Summer Yeager, Sheologians, James White, Alpha and Omega Ministries, John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist Church, Joe Rigney, Bethlehem Baptist Seminary. Dr. R. Scott Clark, a historian and professor at Westminster Seminary in California, points out that the culture wars have become a common rallying point between these disparate entities. In an article titled, Just in Time for Reformation Day, The Return of the Federal Visionists and Their Allies at heidelblog.net. 2019 also, in the Reformed realm, a number of Reformed and Presbyterian pastors in opposition to their own denomination's condemnation of Wilson's federal vision ideology begin supporting Wilson and promoting his resources. Some of these include Rick Appleton, Presbyterian PCA pastor, Michael Foster, Presbyterian PCA church officer, Benny Castle, Presbyterian OPC pastor, Michael Spangler, Presbyterian OPC church officer, Shane Anderson, Presbyterian OPC Church Officer. 2019 also, David Shannon, a.k.a. Chocolate Knox, one of the cross-politic hosts, is hired by Tom Askell, President Founders Ministries, to produce a documentary called By What Standard? In the documentary, Shannon intentionally portrays abuse advocate Rachel Denholander as a demonic influence on the church. Half of Askell's board of directors resigns over the fallout that results and the segment of the film portraying Den Hollander thusly is removed. 2019, the organization Fight, Laugh, Feast is formed in Moscow, Idaho. Like CrossPolitik, FLF does not explicitly bear Doug Wilson's name, but was created by three members of his church, Associate Pastor Toby Sumter, Deacon Gabe Wrench, and filmmaker David Shannon. Fight, Laugh, Feast is an organization meant to promote organizations that are like-minded with Wilson's ideology, i.e. Federal Vision, Theonomy, Patriarchy, and Quiverful. 2019 also, Josh Boos of the G3 conference does an education conference with Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, at New St. Andrews, the college founded by Wilson, and where Wilson's son-in-law, Ben Merkel, is president. Merkel's wife, Rebecca, is one of Wilson's daughters. Of course, that's kind of what it means to be son-in-law, that you're married to Wilson's daughter. Uh, 2019 also, James White, Alpha and Omega Ministries, Jeff Durbin, Apologia, and Summer Yeager, Sheologians, host the ReformCon conference 
in Phoenix, Arizona, together with Doug Wilson's media arm, CrossPolitik. 2020, in January, Josh Boos partners with Doug Wilson's media arm, CrossPolitik, to host the G3 conference in Atlanta. He also invites Doug Wilson's daughter, Rachel Yankovic, to be a speaker at the event. Yankovic and all members of the CrossPolitik organization hold to the same ideological views that Wilson does, federal vision, theonomy, quiverful, and patriarchy. Doug Wilson attends the G3 conference and live streams from several of the vendor booths. Now, can I point out, sorry, like <clears throat> I should have said this sooner, but to continue referring to Doug Wilson's position as ideology, and this is an honest question, is it ideology? Is it theology? And maybe it's ideology, maybe that's correct, but it, these are positions taken that are political, social, theological, and is that all right? Is that all right to call it an ideology? I don't know. Maybe I need to do a podcast sometime exploring what is ideology, and is it a bad thing? Is, is it a bad thing to have an ideology? What is it? And uh, should we be against it? <laughs> should, should we be against it? <laughs> Can you help having an ideology? Should you help it? Um, yeah, let me know. Let me know what you think. Should I do an episode on ideology? Definitely not just right now. Not not in this episode. We'll keep that separate and distinct. Also, 2020, in April, Emily Day Page, a former student at Wilson's Logos K-12 through school, makes a public statement about having been groomed into a sexual relationship with one of her teachers at Logos, James Nance. That's serious. That's pretty serious. How was it dealt with? What happened? How old was she? How did it end up? That's pretty serious stuff. There's not a lot of detail given. It's just a bullet point here. But also, too, something to consider. How big are his organizations? And how many people are there in those organizations? And um, yeah, I mean... These are things to consider if, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario. Suppose, just for the sake of argument, I start an organization and it grows to 100 people. And it comes out that all 100 of the people in my organization are accused of sexual impropriety towards minors. That is uh, that 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 that's a that's a big deal. That's a that's a huge huge deal. Now it's not any less of a big deal in a sense on the micro concerning those individual situations. If you have a hundred allegations, let's say, but I've started an organization that is comprised of a million people. If I've got a million people in my organization and a hundred people spread out all across the organization have been accused of impropriety and predation. Well, then that changes the way we perceive the culture of the organization. Also to how are those situations handled? How are they dealt with? That's an important question with regards to Doug Wilson. That's an important question with regards to CREC and New St. Andrews and Christchurch and Greyfriars and Logos, uh, K through 12 school. Absolutely. But also too, I mean, if three incidents are being brought up 
over the course of uh, 50 years where there was a mishandling or an alleged mishandling. How many people were in the mix? How were these things handled? Those are fair questions, but we shouldn't assume that the answer is, ah, well, it was everybody, right? It was, it was everybody and it was all the time and it was always mishandled and it was always handled inappropriately. You know, just just some thoughts there briefly that occur to me as I'm reading through this. Also, 2020, Wilson continues to sell materials teaching Federal Vision through his family publishing company, Canon Press. 2020, a number of quotes from Wilson's blog, blog and May blog surface, demonstrating Wilson engaging in coarse and unwholesome language over the years, including Wilson making many vulgar references to women's breasts, but also using other coarse language, including, and I'm, I'm going to say the words because the words are on this. There were asterisks, like one each, asterisks, as if the words are not uh, still like absolutely obvious to everyone. I don't know why. I don't. I don't quite understand why. Why do we use the asterisks thing? <sighs> Maybe that should be a podcast episode too. It's like you know, if you're not going to just bleep the whole thing out, but we know what was said. Like what what was really gained there? I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I understand. Um, but children cover your ears, parents, you can pause this cunts, pussy, and bitch. Those are the words that are specifically said to have been used by Doug Wilson on his blog and may blog comparisons to Mark Driscoll known as the cussing pastor begin to be made 2020. Also, Doug Wilson publishes a book about a sex toy and it's just, that's a little bit a little bit misleading. The book Ride Sally Ride features a sex bot, that's more uh, accurate, named Sally. Sex bots are life-sized, anatomically correct dolls made for the purpose of grown men to have sex with and are programmed to say sexually explicit phrases. Note the screenshot of one of the pages from the book. The book and the promo video made through Wilson's publishing company, Canon Press, evoke porn and bondage, domination, sadomasochism, BDSM, culture. Now, I looked this one up and I I had some like vague awareness that this book was published. I haven't read it. I don't know much about it. Uh, I remember hearing him promote it on his podcast. And I remember him saying, hey, here's the setup. Here's what the book is about. And so I had to go back and refresh my memory after reading through this. But essentially what it is, is you've got a fictional story set decades into the future in which a, I think it's a a seminary student, uh, he destroys his friend's sex robot in a trash compactor. And then he's arrested and he's tried for murder. And so then there's all these questions of uh, personhood and what it means to be human and sexual ethics and morality being explored in this fictional story. And I can just about guarantee you, if he wasn't a pastor and if he wasn't a Christian, his book being on that premise would be you know, much better received. But because he is a pastor, uh, there are questions that come into play of, is this being above reproach? Is this maintaining a good reputation with outsiders? Now, I think there are important ethical things to uh, unpack with regards to the the actual thing that 
is in the fictional story and is being developed. Sex robots are being developed, period. Like as lifelike as they can make them. And there's lots of secular media portrayals of fictional stories set in the future where sex robots or robots in general. I mean, Isaac Asimov decades ago wrote iRobot exploring this question. Star Trek featured Data. Star Trek The Next Generation featured the character of Data, who's an android. And they were constantly exploring this theme of personhood and what does it mean to be human? And are we just material or do we have a soul? And what is murder? And if you were to kill Data in Star Trek The Next Generation, would that be murder? And if you kill, so so to speak, a very, very lifelike robot that seems to be self-aware, seems to be able to think, seems almost to be able to feel, or at least to replicate human emotions, that's always the debate. If you destroy a robot in Isaac Asimov's fictional universe or Gene Roddenberry's fictional universe, you know, whether they're a sex robot or they're some, you know, maid or butler robot or or whatever, there's there's there there are <laughs> there are ethical questions uh, to explore and to grapple with and figure out. And so dealing with those questions in a fictional story, generally speaking, uh, I don't have a problem with. I, I've loved science fiction for a long, long time. And I think these are important and pertinent ethical questions that Christians need to be grappling with and pastors need to be grappling with because their parishioners are going to be grappling with them soon on a much larger scale. And do we wait until it's a a huge problem widespread and there's all this wreckage uh, of lives? Do we wait or do we get ahead of it because we see, hey, this is in development and these are going to be the ramifications and we need to make sense of it. I mean, generally speaking, I think the answer is yes, we have to get ahead of it. That doesn't mean his book was great. I haven't read it. It doesn't mean he handled it appropriately, but if he's in hot water because he tried to handle it at all, because some people just really, really don't like him, well, then I take that with a grain of salt. I I do. And, And we have to, I think. 2020, the fight Laugh Feast organization run by three members of Doug Wilson's church, functioning as a media arm for Wilson, hosts a conference in Nashville, October 1st to 3rd. There's an emphasis on military language and imagery during the conference. 2020, the theonomists, influenced by Wilson, begin characterizing themselves as God's prophets. 2021, an article is published in Vice magazine in which survivors of Christ Church and Logos are interviewed their testimonies include a father admitting to the reporter that he secretly watched his daughter shower, accounts of marital rape and domestic violence, accounts of male faculty at Logos School, the K-12 founded by Wilson, engaging in sexually inappropriate behavior with students, and multiple accounts from young women stating that Wilson asked them in private meetings for explicit details about their sexual activity. And so then this, this whole big timeline finishes off with the question, when it comes to Doug Wilson, at what point do we say enough? At what point do we say enough? And so here we are, right? We're, we're two hours in to this episode. This is the longest podcast episode I've ever recorded, I do believe. But at two hours in, I want to say a couple of things. There's a whole bunch of sources down below, 
links, extended quotes, kind of an appendix for this big, long uh, post for examining Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, the Facebook page. But for one, let me point out that the insinuation several times throughout this timeline is that being for patriarchy, being for quiverful, being for uh, political involvement by Christians towards the end of conservative politics and conservative theology and conservative cultural norms being restored in American life, uh, that is inherently untoward. And so a big question to my mind is, can we separate out that being the agenda or uh, beef of some people with Doug Wilson and his associates and his organizations, can we separate out that being the beef from the particulars of allegations made, accusations leveled towards him and his organizations? Can we separate that out? Well, having recently been very involved, actually over five years plus, (laughs) with controversy surrounding another pastor looking to found a media empire and a network online, J.D. Hall, I would say you have to be able to separate out on some level the biases of people who are against these guys from the specific charges that are leveled. On some level, you have to be able to separate those things. Because several things can be true at the same time. And I have learned this with J.D. Hall. It can be true that the things J.D. Hall is attacking in polemics, that's that's what polemics is, is attacking. You're attacking these things, these people, these organizations, these institutions. In fact, this timeline regarding Doug Wilson is a polemic against him. The whole Facebook page examining Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho is a polemic. But it can be true that Doug Wilson, Jordan Hall are attacking bad things. And they're attacking them in sometimes very skillful, clever ways, in very needful ways. And it can also be true that they are guilty of impropriety, error, and sin themselves. Even as they're attacking bad things, they can be doing bad things. And what we should not do is we should not show partiality towards those who are attacking bad things when they themselves do bad things. God doesn't do that. I mean, to give you a scenario, consider King David in the Old Testament. King David is a man after God's own heart. In fact, the Messiah will rule and reign forever and comes through the lineage of David. That's huge. That's huge. Christ is born in the incarnation, enters human history as a man, fully God, fully man, in the lineage of David. And yet, we do not say, we can't say, that David, being a man after God's own heart, fighting Goliath, refusing to kill Saul when he had the chance more than once, is therefore off the hook when he takes the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
we cannot say that David is off the hook. And God does not say that David is off the hook. God sets our example. We're supposed to be imitators of God. We're supposed to be holy because God is holy. We cannot say that because David was a man after God's own heart, and David killed Goliath, and David was blameless in the way that he respected God's anointed king in Saul, even though Saul was behaving very badly, very wickedly. We cannot say that David was blameless in everything that he did, in everything that he said, because that's just not true. That's not what God's word tells us, and that is supposed to be instructive. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, for rebuke, for exhortation, for training unto righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, sometimes the good work we need to do in the church is to discipline those in our own ranks. And it looks, even just from this timeline, as though that has been done. Doug Wilson used to write for Table Talk magazine. I don't think he does anymore, but he used to. And so he was embraced after a fashion by R.C. Sproul's organization, Table Talk magazine. is published by Ligonier Ministries, founded by R.C. Sproul. John Piper, I've watched panel discussions in which John Piper tells Doug Wilson publicly for everyone to see and hear. I think sometimes you get a bit carried away in your own cleverness, and that's not good. We need, like crazy, men like you who are able to speak and who are able to be skillful with their words, but sometimes you get too carried away in your own cleverness. And I've watched the back and forth between Wilson and Piper several extended back and forth conversations. And I know from those that there are not just quiet behind the scenes efforts over the years to tell Wilson when he's crossed the line, when he's mistaken. You see it even in R.C. Sproul coming out against Federal Vision and saying, this is absolutely not mysterious. This is the gospel that's at stake. We can't be unsure about it. And whether he's right or he's wrong about Federal Vision, there's no getting around the fact that he's publicly rebuking Federal Vision, and by extension, if Doug Wilson holds to Federal Vision, rebuking Doug Wilson. There's just, there's no two ways about it. There is an effort there at bringing accountability. You've got Peter Lightheart apologizing to Natalie Greenwood for her abuse. You have CREC, the denomination started by Wilson, rebuking him for mishandling at least two instances of sexual impropriety in his organizations, in his institutions, where he had direct involvement. But then some of this, some of this, I have grave doubts about the substance of because it seems as though in finding fault with Wilson's ideology for patriarchy, what you have on the other end is feminists. You have feminists with their own ideology and certainly plenty of impropriety and indiscretion in their own camp. You have this push against the quiverful movement because it's ideological, but there's an ideology driving a lot of the criticism of the quiverful movement. There's an ideology there that is more mainstream, but it is no more correct just because it's mainstream. You know, Go back and read George Grant's Killer Angel about Margaret Sanger and look at 
Margaret Sanger promoting the ideas that became the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 1970s, right alongside promoting birth control and abortion, saying that the most merciful thing a a large family can do to one of its youngest members is to kill it. And therein, admitting, she recognized that it was murder, that it was killing. Maybe she wouldn't have called it murder, but she would have recognized that it's killing, which is to say she recognized that this is a member of the family, which is to say that she recognized this was a person. This was a human life. You can't kill something that's not alive. And you can't, on the one hand, say this is a member of the family, and on the other hand, deny the personhood of the member of the family. So in effect, she was talking about killing people, little people. And so then she promotes birth control. She promotes contraceptives. She promotes abortion, the legalization of all of the above, the normalization of all of the above. And what you have in the Quiverful movement is perhaps an overzealous compensating for abortion and contraceptives and the sexual revolution and free love, which is not free, it's bondage to sin. But yet those who are criticizing Doug Wilson for being a proponent of Christians having children, having lots of children even, homeschooling their children, training up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's also ideologically driven. The the criticisms of him for being ideological are themselves ideological. We have to recognize that. Again, we have to do a very complicated thing here in separating out where he might be correct generally and in error or in sin in the particulars or showing partiality. Partiality That's not ideological, but that falls into the category of no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And we see partiality across the ideological spectrum, across the theological spectrum, as a factor of human nature. It is corruption. It is a perversion of justice. It undermines confidence in institutions and organizations, just like this timeline is meant to undermine and abolish confidence in Doug Wilson and his organizations and his institutions, but it's not unique to them. Partiality is not unique to them. If it's found in them, we shouldn't turn a blind eye because we say, ah, well, it's everywhere, but neither in correcting it where it's found in organizations we might like or benefit from or appreciate, should we say it's only found here. We're going to accept that or we're going to act like it only counts the way that the left wants it to only count, because there's partiality there too. To say that it only counts when it's people they don't like, but it doesn't really count with their people, or it only counts when it advances their ideology, that's also partiality. And yet, I would say, in the interest of not joining in with partiality, however much I like the content I've seen Doug Wilson put out, commentary especially, it would be partiality for me to say, I'm going to dismiss all of the claims against you, all of the accusations against you without even hearing them, without even considering them. And it would be an error if I were like some in my family who like to quote Proverbs, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him, as if to say, I'm going to dismiss the first to state his case. It's like, okay, that's not the point of that passage. (laughs) The first to state his case seems correct. And so therefore invite someone to cross-examine the testimony. 
That's why you have a prosecuting attorney and you have a defense attorney. But if only one of them shows up or if all of the cases are dismissed because there might be a lengthy due process required to get to the bottom of it, that's not justice. That's not justice. And I'm not suggesting that we need to do that individually as if it hasn't been done, because it looks to me, as I look through this timeline, it looks to me as though that has been done. And in some cases, the allegations and the accusations have been thrown out. And you could say, well, should they have been thrown out? And I would say, maybe. Perfect justice won't be rendered this side of the eschaton, this side of Christ returning or calling us home. We should pursue perfection by God's grace. And we should... We should pursue justice. We should do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And I think if I'm going to, and this is why this is the longest episode I've recorded, because I am trying to be consistent myself. I'm trying not to show partiality. I'm trying not to be a hypocrite myself. If we're going to recommend resources by someone like Doug Wilson, however much we might like the resources, we have to, in the interest of consistency, take a look at serious accusations serious allegations of impropriety and even abuse and tyranny and the like. And again, what's the common theme that we see here? We see a lot made of federal vision. We see a brief hubbub and kerfuffle about ESS, the eternal subordination of the sun, uh, error regarding Trinitarianism. We see a lot made of allegations of sexual predation in Wilson's institutions, not being handled appropriately, happening in the first place, I don't know how you completely prevent that where people are concerned. But how they're responded to, the common theme is Wilson calling for lenience and encouraging people who have gotten out of prison to get married. And when they get married, to have kids. Also with regards to sexuality, you see much made of the book he published two years ago about a sex robot being destroyed. And then you see much made of his having used coarse language, coarse and unwholesome language. Should he have used that kind of language? I don't think so. But the context is key, for one thing. Why I say that is because I'm looking at the episode I just recorded and published yesterday, which I marked as explicit. Again, Another first. That's the first episode in fast approaching 500 where I have had to mark an episode explicit and give a warning on the front end like I had to give in the episode on Ezekiel because I'm reading Ezekiel chapter 16 in the complete Jewish Bible translation. And there is some very frank talk of private parts. And there's some very frank talk of genitals and sex, and whoredom. And so I look at that, and I look at the fact that a lot of our English translations don't render these things quite the same way, and a lot of pastors avoid these passages. And I look at the fact that there's a tradition, an old, millennia-old tradition, that men under 30 weren't to read these things, women weren't to read these things at all, And then I look at Doug Wilson and I wonder to myself how much of the flack he's getting for using some unwholesome language, coarse language, might say more about our having 
too delicate of sensibilities. And that's a question. That's not a statement. It's a question. You know, he writes a book about a sex robot and everyone is predictably scandalized. But what was the point of the book? And is there potentially a pharisaical pearl clutching that goes on when a pastor in a very frank way addresses the sexual immorality of our day through allegory, through satire, through fiction, through a parable, if you will, and yet, on the other hand, we'll criticize him for having sexual immorality going on here and there over the decades in his institutions, in his school, in his college, in his seminary, in his church. Young people grooming even younger people. Is a pastor not supposed to address that at all? Not supposed to address sexual immorality at all? God forbid, because God's word addresses it. And yet again, I'll say it's complicated. It's complicated because it feels as though there are multiple sets of standards depending on who you are. And to that, someone will rightly say pastors are held to a higher standard and they should be. And that's biblical. And I say, yes, amen. And someone will say, those who teach, not many of you should be teachers because we know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. And I say, yes, amen. But then comes the question, is the expectation greater strictness towards those who are found to be guilty of sexual immorality, throw the book at them, put them to death, castrate them, throw them in prison, and never let them out again? Is that the responsibility that pastors have when they're talking with the judge who's presiding over the case? If the standard is perfection, I don't disagree. If the expectation is perfection, I have some thoughts. And among those thoughts is a concern about consistency, about partiality. I'm concerned about partiality on Doug Wilson's part if he was showing partiality because this guy's the son of a wealthy donor. I'm also concerned about the partiality inherent to allegations against Wilson. And again, the big question is, how should these things be handled? All right, we don't like the way it was handled. How should they be handled? And how do we know? One last thought, because this has gotten to be a very, very long episode, and maybe we can say more about it in future, but I think two and a half hours is plenty for this one. This right here is why I think Carl Truman's warnings about celebrity pastors were so very needful. Go back and check out episode 440 of this podcast titled Prioritizing Celebrity Pastors Over Faithfulness in the Local Church. I published that the end of July this year. And I play some clips from a discussion panel at Together for the Gospel, a conference they held a few years back in which Carl Truman and Matt Chandler, and David Platt, and C.J. Mahaney were talking about celebrity pastors and the problem and the danger of having celebrity pastors and us making too much of what they have to say. Carl Truman is right. Carl Truman is right. We do need to be very careful about celebrity pastors. And that includes ones we like. That includes ones who are saying things we appreciate. If it becomes a cult of personality that is dangerous for the pastor, that is dangerous for his church, 
that is dangerous for his denomination, that is dangerous for the testimony of the church writ large. That's a bad idea. We shouldn't lean into that. It's true of Doug Wilson. His being a celebrity pastor and us putting too much stock in what he says makes him vulnerable and all of his institutions vulnerable. Abuse of power is a concern in every sphere of authority. And it doesn't mean that you abolish all authority, but there need to be checks and balances. And I think one of the ways you check and balance abuse of power is on the front end when you say, here's how much wit, here's how much weight we are going to give to this person. And when they say something, more than none, less than all, because only God is always right. The dangerous thing is when you find yourself no longer able to disagree with someone who is a finite creature, who is fallible, who has a sinful nature to contend with themselves. When you can't disagree, even on minor things, that's dangerous. Beware, watch out. But that applies as much to Doug Wilson as it does to those he has agitated. And that's the concern. That's the concern all around is if Doug Wilson is somebody you can't disagree with, well then, what if he's wrong? We're going to follow him into error, I guess. And we have to, God forbid. And so also on the other hand, if he has painted a giant target on his back because he's against things that the broader culture is adamantly for, and he's for things that the broader culture is adamantly against, and so the knives have come out, decades worth of criticism piles up, and some of it is legitimate, and some of it is iffy at best, then I say what I have said, I think just about every time I've referenced Doug Wilson, I really appreciate this thing that he said. I really don't agree with that. I think that's not quite correct. I think that's a little too far. I can't agree with this. Watch out for that. And you should do the same with me, and you should do the same with your favorite theologian, pastor, author, recording artist, friend. Only Christ is sufficient. Only Christ is sinless. Only God is totally without error, without shadow of turning. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got. It's a long one. If you made it this far, mad props. Mad props to you, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.